Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Running Anthropologist podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lane Holbert, bringing you the Peace Corps Part 3 with three individuals serving all across the world. I think you're going to really like this one. We start off with Mike Delage, who's an ultra runner, and tells us about how learning from failure and setbacks in the Peace Corps taught him to be a better runner. And he ran both in Columbia and the country of Georgia. Next up, we have Hannah Wallace, who served very recently, finished her service 2017 to 2019, and she is a competitive pole vaulter. She actually started running for the first time during her Peace Corps service in Paraguay, doing her first 5K and 10K. And she talks to us about how pole vaulting has influenced her life, as well as how it led her into running, and the pole vaulting that she brought to her community there. And lastly, we run the spectrum of history here, dating the Peace Corps all the way back, almost to its beginning. We have a Peace Corps volunteer on, Toby Hannah Davies, who served in 1969 to 1971. And she tells us all about her experience in that time in Micronesia. A quick disclaimer, this one with Toby is a little bit more about the history and what it was like to serve as a Peace Corps volunteer in the late 60s and early 70s, a little bit less about running. So just so you know, going into it. Oh, and you may need a map. We have a link to that on our website when we're talking about Micronesia. So without further ado, let's get started. And welcome to the podcast, Mike Delage. Thanks for being with us. Um, look forward to hearing about your Peace Corps and running experience. Great. Thanks, Mark. Good afternoon. So I served in Colombia on the North Atlantic coast from 2011 to 2014. And my site was actually on an island off the coast of Cartagena, uh, kind of a little dusty town, which was just a fantastic community, wonderful people, um, but right around like 20, 25 minutes or so from Cartagena. And uh, my primary project there was teaching English as a foreign language. So I worked with a lot of the teachers, trying to help them with curriculum development, uh, planning activities for, for classes, and doing some co-teaching with them. Um, but in addition to that, I actually started an Afro-Colombian drumming and dance group, wow. which I got a lot of really fantastic experience out of and just really melded with the community a lot more. Oh, that sounds fantastic. And for those that don't know, including myself, what is the, you know, the, the fusion or how does the African and the Colombian influence come together? What's, what's that like? So the city of Cartagena was one of the largest slave import towns, import cities in Latin America. Okay. So there's a lot of influence from the Africans that were brought in. Uh, so one of the uh, well-known style of music from that region is cumbia. Uh, which has actually kind of spread throughout a lot of parts of Latin America. And it just has a particular beat to it, um, where it's like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, that uh, is actually modeled after kind of the way that the the slaves would walk when their legs were chained. Uh, and huh. the dance style is along that way, too. It's kind of has a, a shuffle to it. So things along that line and a lot of um, kind of activities that, people in the Afro-Colombian culture partake in. So uh, there's another dance that has a heavy emphasis on fishing or rather kind of on the way that 
uh, fish flop around in a boat when they come out of the water <laughs> called Mapule. So it's just you... a really cool way to kind of get to know the, the culture and see kind of that angle on things. Cool. Can you say that again, Mapfe? Mapale. Mapale. Okay. Yep. Cool. Yeah, it's it's a M-A-P-A-L-E with an accent on the E if anybody wants to check it out. Um, there's some, some cool dances out there. It's kind of a dance of force and strength. So this isn't really ballet. It's more just getting out there and uh, kind of sometimes showing what you put with it. Uh-huh. Cool. Um, so... You know, sometimes people say this is the toughest job you'll ever love. That's the quote we hear a lot about the Peace Corps. Um, was it tough, and did you love it? <laughs> what, what, what can you tell us about what you did and, you know, how did now having some time in retrospect to uh, kind of reflect on it, what, what do you think about that? Uh, my answer to both questions is absolutely yes. Huh. Uh, it was very tough. Um, it's one of those things where it is easy to feel like you are not making any difference and mm. you're going into it oftentimes pretty ideal and pretty, uh, idealistic thinking I can get to a place and I can make changes and I can help people and help communities and you will have times where there is nothing going on at all, like not even progress forward or progress back, just a lot of kind of downtime of people are living their lives. Maybe people are hanging out because that's kind of the activity of the day and not feeling like you can really make a dent. So the big thing I would say, kind of the takeaway from, from my experience there is just play the long game, uh, build those relationships, get to know the community. And that's kind of how you can make a change over time. Um, because if you're expecting kind of quick turnaround uh, high impact right off the bat. That stuff does not usually happen at all. Um, but I did love it enough that I still keep in touch with my host family and a lot of people from the community. And I actually, I had such a great experience in Colombia that I went directly from there to the Republic of Georgia, where I did a six-month response uh, kind of position. So a short-term project with, with Peace Corps in Georgia working with a small NGO. So it was definitely something that I found. I got so much value out of it. I wanted to continue. Um, and I look back and it's been such a transformative time of my life where I've built tremendous relationships and had a lot of growth and felt like I've been exposed to a lot in the world. Um, and also got to know a lot of cultures and a lot of people that way. Yeah, two very different cultures. That that's a neat opportunity. Um, Peace Corps response, and if if I'm correct in in this uh, assumption that usually people do it shortly after or sometime after they finish their their two years of Peace Corps service in another location. They can, yes, um, but there's actually I don't believe there's any time frame uh, related to it. So it's it's one of those things that if you have you know ten years after finishing your service or twenty years or longer. Uh, you can do response. We hmm. had, I've met a few people who were retired and had decided uh, with retirement that they would get back into Peace Corps and didn't necessarily want to do the full uh, 27 months of the tour. They wanted to do something that was more, you know, three months to a year. So would sign up for that and go in with the skills that they had from their careers or from their previous service hmm. and try to make a try to kind of help start up a program or help move a program further along. And they've actually 
with response, they've actually opened it up in certain ways to people who haven't done Peace Corps in the past. Okay. So uh, I think this is mainly on the healthcare side of things. Uh, so people who have a, a background in healthcare and uh, kind of a medical nursing or doctor background or public health, finding opportunities for them to go to places and kind of plug in as short-term response volunteers. Oh, that's great and definitely very much needed. Um, so how did that, so you talked a little bit about building relationships and how important that was and how important being there for that time was. How did running, um, you know, plug into that or how did it plug into the other thing you mentioned, all the downtime when you weren't necessarily changing the world right away or as quickly as you wanted to? I would say definitely the latter. Okay. Uh, Running in in both places where I was in um, in Colombia and then in Georgia, uh, particularly in Colombia, running was looked at very strangely. Hmm. It was where I was it was constantly uh, ninety degrees or warmer with a lot of humidity, and so people really didn't run. Um, people actually uh, avoided being outside during a lot of times of the day or just stayed in the shade because of how hot it was. And so a lot of people just thought I was absolutely crazy <laughs> that I would go for runs in the morning around 10 a.m. <laughs> um, so there was one of those things of, you know, they, they understood that there is value in it, but they're like, why the heck would you do that? You are going to have a heart attack and just drop down on the trail and nobody's going to find you for a few hours or something like that. <laughs> um, so it's just another one of those things of people looking at me being like, all right, this guy is clearly from a different world and a different culture. This is very strange. So uh, it, it created more humorous moments than, than not. Uh, but it was, I did find running for me, it was a good use of downtime and a really good de-stressor, uh, particularly when I would have so many days where you know, school might get canceled because it was too windy for the teachers to be able to catch a boat in, or mm. electricity would go out and I had a day off at home and I wouldn't have anything to do. So being able to take advantage of that time and, and go for a run and feel like on certain days at the end of the day, wow, I didn't accomplish anything except I actually put in a couple miles mm. and using that as a very small thing of okay, I can keep active and do things and try to try to be regular in my life even when it feels like there's chaos around me in the school or in my projects. Not going as you would like, yeah, not going as you would like it to. So it sounds like it was a little bit of an isolated environment in that teachers actually had to boat in from the mainland to, uh, to the community. Right, yeah, for the most part. Um, we had around 20, 22 teachers that worked at the school and I would say only two or three of them actually lived in my town. Hmm. Um, the, the rest would boat in. And it would often, we would have days, there are particular times of the year, uh, January and February, where it gets really windy. Hmm. And the teachers would be looking out the window and start to see the water chopping up a little bit. And they would just say, hey, we, uh, we have to call our boat driver and get out of here because otherwise it might be, a little too dangerous for us to get back and the moat might flip or something. Hmm. Interesting. So uh, do you have any, you know, from that time or f from your time in Georgia, do you have any uh, running stories? I know I, I mentioned this to you that we might talk about this 
um, you know, that display the culture or a lesson learned that could give listeners an impression of what the country is like? So I think just kind of the, the fact that I, w- I would run, but other people would not understand that and trying to get them to understand that. Um, Georgia was a little different than Columbia in that regard, where they actually have a small running community. Hmm. And uh, a lot of the Peace Corps volunteers that I was with um, in kind of around the area there, and some of the people that I worked with actually participated in what they call the Tbilisi Marathon. Yes, yeah, Tbilisi. Um, yeah, that's the, I'm sure that's the biggest running community. That's the capital, right? Mm-hmm, correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's actually, I, I don't know why they call it the Tbilisi Marathon, because it's actually a half marathon. Okay. Uh, so it's a 13.1 miles rather than a 26.2. Uh, but that was just a, a fantastic event to get out there and feel like I'm running in another country um, and getting to know people through that. I, I really bonded very well with one of uh, the staff members who works for Peace Corps, a local employed staff member, um, over just running, uh, huh. just kind of talking about running and the concept of getting out there and being active and regular. Um, in a city like Tbilisi, where you kind of are, your two options for running are if you can afford a gym, you go to the gym and you work on the work out on the treadmill. Or if you can't, or like you're a Peace Corps volunteer, you just get out on the road and basically play Frogger with the cars because... They drive pretty crazy, uh, and it's not always like a good sidewalk to run on. Hmm, that's unfortunate. Are there some national parks or some areas around that you could find a good distance to do in those? There were a few little parks in the city, mm-hmm. so it was possible to get out and do that. Um, just from a, a time perspective, it wasn't always able to build that into my my regular schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I would find sometimes I would just have to get out and once I got home, throw on the shoes and just hit the streets and go for a few miles. Yeah. Yeah. I do a lot of that too, especially when things get busy, you know, you feel like, all right, I got to be content with what miles I can do around home. Um, I mm-hmm. think that's true wherever, wherever you find yourself. And it's nice to just, just be able to put on shoes and go. Um, so Mike, let me ask you in coming back, I know a lot of people, their reflection upon the Peace Corps is that it gave them confidence or it helped them find a part of themselves that, was latent, you know, that they hadn't seen before, um, and definitely applied to their life back home when they when they came back. Um, can you think of any areas where that where that applies to you um, in running or in in your current work or both? I think one a couple things that have that definitely stand out to me are just having more patience and trying to be more understanding. And that's something I try to reflect upon. And even if I have times in my life or times during the workday where I feel my patience slipping, um, it's, it's much more along the lines of things will get done in the long run. Hmm. We don't need to necessarily rush everything and stress ourselves out. But if something is going to happen, we can probably get it done uh, kind of and at a a good pace and just kind of moving forward. So having patience with timelines, with other people that I'm working with, and also with myself. Hmm. And I find a big parallel between that part of Peace Force service where you might feel you're putting in so much effort, energy, and really trying to work with the community, and things aren't getting there. 
Hmm. Seeing that that part and being able to pull back and say, okay, let's just be patient about this and kind of keep keep working at it and keep you know, trying to see what we can do um, without getting angry or upset or anything. And I find there's a big parallel between that and the running that I'm doing these days, sure. uh, especially over the last few months. I've started to become kind of much more active in running ultra marathons and long distances. Mm-hmm. And there are times when you get out there and you have a great run and you finish strong and feel really good. And then there are other times when you get out there and you just don't feel that. And mm. you have to recognize, okay, am I going to try to finish this race? Uh, and if so, they're knowing when to walk, knowing when to take those breaks. Uh, because if you push yourself too hard, you might end up getting injured or you might just uh, kind of overdo it or you might also just ruin the experience of it and finish feeling like you had a good time or like time as based upon the amount of time that it took you to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, but you might feel that it wasn't worth it because you're, you weren't taking in the scenery enough or chatting with the other runners. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely hear you there. And my, long distance attempts i've always sort of kicked myself if i pushed it too hard and wasn't able to enjoy it with you know the people that i went with or witness the community the culture around me and really be grateful for that time uh because it's a lot of time when you get into long distance running um and i i actually think you know as you said learning from um for example i know that you recently did uh, a 50k attempt and you did about mm-hmm. half of that, but I'm sure it was it was a good experience, and you learned a lot from it. Absolutely, every every run, every like kind of long trail run that I do is a learning experience, and it is illuminating how much I learn through each of these. Um, I completed my first 50k earlier this year uh, out on the West Coast, and just learning about how to pace myself how to understand how my body is feeling at a certain point, how my mind is feeling at a certain point, and to be able to pull back at times and think I could really run fast on these trails, but I feel myself getting distracted or I feel myself getting dehydrated. And to be able to understand that, um, one thing I did earlier this year is I have a friend who has decided to do an ultra marathon every month of this year. Hmm. So in 2019, every month he has an ultra marathon plan. Wow. And he had an opening in the month of May. He didn't have anything scheduled. So he created his own yeah. and asked a whole bunch of us uh, that we know through kind of an early morning workout group if we were interested in joining and some of his other friends. So we ended up doing a 46-mile run slash walk on the Appalachian Trail from the Pennsylvania state border to the Virginia state border. Oh, beautiful. And it was absolutely beautiful. We had a great group of around 15 of us. He had two buddies that uh, were just absolute saints and drove vehicles, vans, from kind of one of the checkpoints to another. So we had kind of moving aid stations. But it was the toughest, most intense thing that I think I've done in my life, Mm. um, where... You know, we started off strong. We had a great day. It started to heat up. People started to really feel that heat. Uh, Some people decided to cut their run shorter and do 
maybe a 50k distance or 40 miles um but then towards the end we're just all completely depleted and (laughs) kind of just finished uh feeling absolutely exhausted um so not one of those runs that you finish and you you feel hyped up and strong about but feeling like wow we did that that absolutely just kicked all of our butts (laughs) Uh, and then the next day talking about when we're going to do that again. <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard that the Appalachian trail can kick your butt, especially trying to run it. Um, mm-hmm. but I'm glad that's, that's something that'll go down as a, as a good experience though. And it sounds like everyone finished and was well supported. Definitely. And I'd say there's another parallel there that I see between that and my Peace Corps service where they're both very intense experiences and so coming out of Peace Corps and knowing my friends from that served with me in Colombia and in Georgia, having a deep understanding of, yeah, we went through some stuff. Mm. Uh, and it's kind of something that you can see with talking to other Peace Corps volunteers who served in completely different cultures and different countries and had different projects. But you have kind of a base of understanding with them or at least um, – empathy between the two between the different people and seeing that as well with that trail run that i did on the appalachian trail because it was so intense and feeling like i came out of it and there are people that i'd never met before and i ended up spending 24 hours with uh throughout the whole day when we started and ended and everything and feeling like wow we just really bonded very strongly over that um and so just both very intense, but very wonderful and fruitful experiences. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I definitely see that connection, Mike. And I can see, you know, how, as you say, you might work with someone every day for years and not know them very well, but you go through something like that, an ultra event or Peace Corps service, even if it's a short uh, service time and you feel like, you know, you know everything about them and you connect really well. Um, I, I think ultra running community and trail running community, and I've talked about this with others on our show, really has a place in building relationships and building connections between people. Oh, absolutely. It's, I find particularly the trail running community. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to uh, road running, people tend to, not everyone, but there tends to be a lot more competitiveness mm-hmm. and a lot more just get out there and kind of trying to chase what your personal record, your PR might be, hmm. trying to beat your time from last time on you know, a 5K or a 10K or a full marathon. So constantly pushing against that. And with trail running, you get out there and you might be running a trail that you run before, but maybe it rained. Maybe it's, so you're dealing with all the mud. Maybe it's super dry and you're dealing with kind of just a lot more dirt than you're used to. Maybe it's hot, maybe it's cold. And being able to say, okay, this is a completely different thing. Maybe last time I did this run in X number of hours, today I might do that, or I might do better, or I might do worse. And just understanding that and having people who are around you feeling exactly the same. Because mm-hmm. when it comes to trail running, there are you know there are a, lot, a handful of people that go out there and they want to be the first. They want to just crush it. Um, but a lot of us are actually just out there because it's a good time and it's a good community. So I think um, 
kind of a, a closing thought that I see both in Peace Corps service and in running, uh, and just kind of in life is one thing I've found is been very beneficial and valuable to me is to not try to compare myself to others, but rather to who I've been in the past and how, how I've acted in the past or how I felt physically in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's easy in Peace Corps where you can get, get in there and you can see other volunteers absolutely killing it at their site. <laughs> and it's not always that way for every volunteer. And that can be pretty frustrating in seeing that. Um, and likewise with trail running, when you get out there, you might have those days where you're not feeling 100%, but other people are. And just trying to think of, you know, a lot of what I did in Peace Corps, uh, somebody, a good friend of mine told me, the first year of Peace Corps is getting to know what you're doing, getting to understand your site, know the community, build those relationships. The second year of Peace Corps is actually making things happen. Hmm. And that's kind of a rough paraphrase. And I think, you know, that's, that's very true where you might have down times where you're not feeling like you're really doing anything, but being able to look back in my service and see over the course of that time, how I feel I made a difference and how I feel I became a better person and built stronger relationships and made an impact. And same thing with running where I look back now on how I felt a year ago, a year and a half ago, and I'm able to get out there and do things that I just could not have done before. And so feeling a lot of gratitude in that and just recognizing where being patient with myself over the long run and just keeping at it has kind of been the key. And uh, for the second question, for kind of a good phrase that I would say, um, I'm trying to think of one from from each of the different places. I think one from Columbia uh, that I found... Really good is just, I think it's just kind of a, a general interjection. Uh, when like something's going well and you're like, yes, that right there is just like, eso, which means that. Uh, so <laughs> it's like when a friend makes a good joke mm-hmm. or when you see something cool, uh, it's like, eso, like, yeah, that's, that's it. Go. That's it. Right mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And I think one from one that everybody should know, if you ever intend to go to Georgia or meet a Georgian, uh, is Galmarjos. Galmarjos. Galmarjos, that's right. And that is their cheers, if you will. And I think in, in how it actually is means in the language, I think it means something along the lines of victory unto us which I think is just a, a fantastic phrase. And hopefully I'm not completely off on that. Uh, but like cheers and you know, victory unto us. All right. Galmarjos. Awesome way to end. Galmarjos. And uh, I, I wish you the same, Mike, in, in your uh, distance running. I know that like everything, you'll uh, take it a step at a time and make lots of good connections as you go. So I, I wish you happy running. Great. Thank you, Mark. Likewise. All the best to you. You too.
And welcome to the podcast, Hannah Wallace, recently back from her Peace Corps experience in Paraguay. Um, maybe you could get it started by telling us kind of, you know, what you did there and why you served in the Peace Corps in Paraguay. Of course. Um, I was a community health volunteer in Paraguay, um, mainly focused on non-communicable diseases um, and developing youth life skills in my community. Um, and I'm professionally very interested in working in international health and development, um, and so that's how I found Peace Corps. That's awesome. I, I hear a lot of people um, and also interview many people who have kind of parlayed their Peace Corps experience into international development work and kind of found that joy for serving others abroad and um, helping with causes that they're, they think are important. And I, I know that you, um, when you came back to the U.S., it, I'm sure it was a, a cultural transition because it's very recent. What, what kind of impressions do you have from the, the community that you served in, uh, you know, as far as daily life and differences um, from life at home? Um, the community I served in had 350 people, so very small. And I really took away a sense of families. Um, people have a, have extended families, you know, living in, under one household, grandparents taking care of grandchildren, aunts and uncles, everybody under one roof. And I really love that aspect that it doesn't matter kind of how related you are, but you are family and people really took me in as a stranger and I was really treated as one of the family. Hmm. Yeah, sort of that. Some of those lessons from intergenerational living, I, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's really really neat. I I had a similar experience in in my host family, uh, in the Peace Corps, whom I only stayed with for a few months. But um, just that sense of kind of enfolding, support and love for one another. That um, you know, sometimes in our fast paced life back home, we we don't get that as much. Exactly. Um, and what what did you do during your service? What was your uh, daily life like? Um, I worked mainly with uh, community groups, uh, mainly with the Women's Commission in my community. We had about four, 35 to 40 women that were part of this formalized group. So we met every two weeks, um, and I would give sort of a charla, a presentation on some sort of nutrition topic, or we'd have a cooking class, or I'd work with someone from the health post to talk about um, sexual health education, and um, one of the exciting projects we did was a family garden, so we were able to get a donation of seeds for all of the families that were part of the mission, and talk about how to plant uh, more effectively, how to make compost how to really improve their family garden. That is super cool. I'm, I'm glad to hear, you know, one one community at a time. That sounds like it makes a big difference. Um, mm-hmm. So let's shift gears. I, as I mentioned off air, I think you're the first competitive pole vaulter, which I've been lucky enough to talk to. And I know that one of the things I read when you, you know, you responded to our running anthropologist search was that you're um, – pole vaulting started actually using bamboo 
uh, maybe not yours, yeah. but back in the history of it. And when you got to Paraguay, you also used bamboo. Um, could okay. you tell us, you know, well, maybe you could step back and tell us how you got involved in pole vaulting and then how it was different in Paraguay. I began pole vaulting my freshman year of high school. Um, previously, I had done gymnastics, and a lot of pole vaulters come from either gymnastics or the diving world. Mm-hmm. So I started in high school and was lucky enough to do that all through college. I am completely addicted. I will pole vault for as long as I can, um, either as an athlete or work um, as a coach. Um, but it's a really amazing, like, athletic community to be a part of. That's awesome. I can see the connection with high diving because you're up pretty high heights using this very skinny pole. Um, yeah. And bamboo, you said, is strong enough, and that's what that's what you had to use when you taught pole vaulting in, in Paraguay? Yes. Yeah, so historically, um, bamboo was something that was used um, because it has the strength to hold a person. Um, but it's also flexible enough that's going to give you that bend. Um, and we obviously didn't have fiberglass poles in Paraguay, but we did have bamboo. And so I was really excited to share this part of who I am with the kids in my community. Um, and so we went out one weekend, we cut down the bamboo, I let them dry in my yard for a couple of days, and then we did a sport and health camp at the school with the students, um, and I got to teach them a little bit of the basics of pole vaulting, nothing too crazy, but introduce them to a new sport. Okay, now I, I, you're going to have to fill me in here, because I'm picturing these kids grabbing a bamboo and flying in the air on your backyard. Um, it seems like you'd have to do a little more prep than that. Did you create mats, or how, you know, how did you get them so they weren't flying all over the place without any uh, any support and training? We didn't have a way to have sort of a mat. Um, and actually, historically, pole vaulters used to land in just sawdust or sand pit before huh. they came up with the big mat, sort of mattresses that are used now. Um, so we did not use those. Um, and I was very aware of sort of the safety of this. The students kind of took one or two steps. They'd hold um, a belt, they'd stand with their hand above their head, sort of hold on to a pole and take a couple steps. And then I would assist them so that the pole wouldn't go just anywhere, but they were going in one clear motion um, across the field. So they were never more than maybe six feet off the ground. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. And the poles, uh, you can make them smaller or larger, depending on how high you want to go. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so in pole vaulting, uh, an athlete will have a range of poles, both different lengths, and then um, different sizes as well, which is going to change how the pole bends, how fast it moves, all to give that perfect jump. Interesting. Wow, that's that's really neat. And so you were able to find the right flexibility, the right, um, uh, I guess, the enough strength just in those bamboo in your community to be able to do this youth program. Yes, we only broke one bamboo pole, but I did um, decide on larger pieces of bamboo just to be on the safe side. 
Um, but it is a very strong, flexible material, so we were lucky that it supported all of the kids. Yeah, I guess I'm pretty naive. You know, in, in parts of the world, bamboo is a primary building source as well, so it's definitely got some strength and uh, good in, in inclement weather and things like that, too, I, I've heard. Um, so yeah. would you mind, so I know in your pole vaulting, obviously through your career, you also did running, but not super long distances. Were you involved in, Correct. what were your track, your track and field events besides pole vault? Um, I've competed in everything from long jump, triple jump, the 100 meters, 200 meters, and then the 4x1 relay, 4x2 relay, and 4x4 relay. All right, so you were all about speed. Yes. And height. <laughs> um, and when you got to Paraguay, um, I know just from briefly, you know, talking about this with you, that was your first experience with long distance running. Can you tell us, you know, how you ran your first 5K, 10K, um, you know, why you chose to pick it up uh, during your Peace Corps service? Yes. I knew when I came to Paraguay, I was going to have to let go of my traditional workout routine, take up new exercises to stay in shape because I wasn't going to have a gym, I wasn't going to have weights and all of the stuff I'm accustomed to. So I came open-minded, um, but I was really lucky to have one of my site mates um, who was more of a distance runner than I was, and so we started going to run during training, and we had a, um, a the first 5K run um, was over Semana Santa, the holy week leading up to Easter. Um, and that was in our training community. And so we signed up for that. The farthest I had ever run up until that point. Um, <laughs> but we would go for runs after training, in the morning, before training, and just kind of work up to, to that distance. That's amazing. It, and it really is, you know, sometimes I forget about this, but it's really a curve. You know, you start adding on those miles and at first it seems really tough but then once you're yeah. ready for the race it's like wow you know i can i can do this you know i can keep doing this i i feel i feel good running this distance uh was yeah, it the, was it like that for you yes the race um went much better than i anticipated um i had sort of set a time marked for myself and, and was able to accomplish that um, but definitely the training for me was, was the harder part, being able to go out and run you know, farther than that distance just to kind of build up the strength in my legs, build up those different muscles that were used to, to firing as quickly as long um, in a long-distance race compared to, to sprinting. Um, the training was the harder part. Sure, finding that time to get out there and, and keep doing more miles during the week. And that's... Yeah. I think you'll find most runners will tell you that, you know, particularly you find a good training partner or a good group, you're really lucky, but those individual runs and the long runs, they, they can be tough. You know, you're not in the, the, the fun of the actual event and you're putting in the miles every week and that, that's, um, you get into a cadence or rhythm with it, but, uh, it's not the easiest part. You run after training, so it's the evening, you're learning a new city, a new community, or you're running in the morning. Um, I was locked out of my house one morning because I left. I wanted to leave too early mm. to go for a run, and I couldn't get out, 
but um, finding the time just around the Peace Corps training schedule is is a little bit challenging. That's interesting. Could you tell us, you know, for people that maybe haven't experienced a Peace Corps training, what the schedule is like? So, Peace Service training runs 10 weeks, um, about, and it is a 8 to 5 training day. At the, uh, we go to the training center, we have Peace Corps staff, we go through language training, cultural training, technical training. Um, but it is an all-day endeavor, um, and so we only get a little bit of time in the morning with our host families. We have a little bit of time in the evening, um, but we do that for 10 weeks. Yeah, it's an intense training period of time, and uh, all that time you're staying with a uh, host community and you're actually practicing the language. Yeah. That's, um, yeah, definitely an intense period. I, I think ours was, was very similar to that. And uh, traditionally, you know, being in the place where you're training and learning, it takes a lot of mental energy, too, because you, you feel like you're, uh, you're always on, so to speak. Yeah, it's mentally exhausting to, to work and live in a different language when you're first getting accustomed to it. Definitely. So speaking of language, do you have a useful phrase or motto that you took away that you think um, kind of exemplifies the, the experience in Paraguay that you brought home? Um, one of my favorite words is Icatru, which is actually a Guarani word. Um, okay. Paraguay has two languages, um, Spanish and Guarani, which is a, one of their indigenous languages. Okay. Um, so Icatru translates to poder in Spanish, which oh. means like to can or to be able to. Um, and I always felt it was used in kind of an optimistic, like, you can do it, you know, why not sort of a, a way. Um, so that's one of my favorite words to use. Ikatu. Yes. All right. Very cool. I'll, I'll have to remember that. I-K-A-T-U. All right. Great. I'll, I'll post that on the website as well. Uh, and I, I have heard of Guarani. Um, how often would it be that you would find Guarani speakers in the area where you were? I actually spoke Guarani in my community. Um, it's still very much spoken in rural communities and outside of the capital. So I actually worked mostly in Guarani, and then when I ran out of words in, in that language, I would fall back on Spanish. Um, and most people do understand Spanish in in the rural parts of, of Paraguay, but people are much more comfortable speaking in Guarani. Um, and so that's what I used. Hmm. I, I bet that's true throughout Latin America and more rural areas that, um, you know, people feel more comfortable speaking their first language, very often an indigenous language. Yeah. Very cool. Um, okay. So last thing that I usually ask people is um, your favorite food and or cultural event that you got to experience that you would recommend to others. My favorite food was probably tallarín, which is the Paraguayan version of like homemade spaghetti and meat sauce. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> it's delicious. Good, good for runners, uh, too. Yeah. And my favorite cultural event, um, I was hoping one of my favorite memories of like cultural events was actually getting to dance with 
students at my school, um, like traditional Paraguayan um, dances for all of the Teacher's Day, Mother's Day, any sort of special occasion that we had. Um, I thought that was really special that the kids invited me to join in. They taught me these dances and then sort of dressed me in the traditional Paraguayan uh, clothing, and we got to perform that for the community. That's great. Um, would you like to uh, tell forecast your next uh, pole vaulting or running um, competition? TBD. Um, <laughs> I'm still getting back into uh, pole vaulting condition, but um, hopefully in the next year or so, um, I will have the the speed and the strength back. Uh, so. I'm not going to rush it. Awesome. Well, best of luck with that. I, I know that you'll do well, and the spirit that you gained in the Peace Corps will serve you throughout life and uh, all your adventures. So we really appreciate your time on The Running Anthropologist. Thank you so much. Happy running and vaulting. Toby Hannah-Davies, welcome to the program. Toby is joining us from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and she was actually a volunteer in Micronesia from 69 to 71, kind of the heyday of the Peace Corps. So, Toby, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mark. Um, so excited to talk to you. You have so many great stories. We've talked, um, you know, off-air and in-person uh, many times. So thanks, um, thanks for sharing your wisdom. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about uh, where you were and what your service project was. Um, most people don't have much of an idea of where Micronesia is, except they know it's in the Pacific Ocean and means tiny islands. It's quite amazing, actually, that Micronesia spans 2,000 miles of the Pacific Ocean. It's as wide across as the continental United States. Wow. Um, but it's tiny islands, so the land mass is really small. It, if you know where the Philippines are, it's 2,000 miles of ocean plus east of the Philippines. And, uh, since I was there, 69 to 71, what um, was called Micronesia when I was there has um, voted. It used to be the trust territory of Micronesia after World War II when the United Nations took it away from Japan. Hmm. Um, and the United States' job was to, was entrusted with helping Micronesia develop into independence. And since I left, um, different parts of Micronesia um, voted to have different kinds of relationships with the United States. So now there are different parts you probably have heard of, like the Northern Marianas Islands, north mm. of Guam, and Palau, which is closest to the Philippines, which has a giant U.S. military base, 
and the Federated States of Micronesia, which is where I was, and then the furthest east are the Marshall Islands, where the United States did a lot of atomic testing, atom bomb testing after World War II. Um, hmm. And all these different parts of Micronesia have different, very different characters, and they're all related um, languages, but some of them much more distantly than others, and related cultures, but very um, distinct in some ways. Um, and the kind of island that the people uh, live on has a lot to do with the kind of foods that are available and the kinds of, of, of life people lead. So it's a fascinating, wonderful place to be. That's really interesting, and and I know that you fully experienced that culture. Um, you were really immersed in it. Can you tell us about a little bit about the island that you were on and what what your daily life was like there? Yes, my island was Falalup, which means big island, but by anybody else's measurement, is tiny, <laughs> um, and it was part of Ulithi which is a ring of islands like a necklace around the lagoon. Hmm. And Ulysses was part of the outer islands of Yap District. Some people know Yap because it has the giant stone money ah, right. um, that just stays in front of Yapi's home. Um, and Yap was the, the capital of... Yap District when I was there, um, and the Outer Islands looked to Yap for help if there was uh, a hurricane, because Yap was a much bigger island with much more land, hmm. more resources. Where I was, was an overnight ride sleeping on the deck of um, a boat that went uh, 500 miles to the wow. farthest the islands of Yap District. and That's incredible. Ulysses, where I was, was the closest of the outer islands. And it's a different culture and a different language and different clothing, different everything from Yap District. Um, and it's more related where I was. Um, to the cultures further east in um, the parts of Micronesia called Chuk, which used to look like truck the way they spelled it, but now they spell it more like Chuk, C-H-U-U-K, hmm. and Ponape, uh, which are all low, mostly low islands, um, mostly islands that are coral, islands that are built on the, the tops of craters of sunken volcano. Wow, that's really interesting. They, yeah, it's fascinating. So all the, there are all different kinds of islands in Micronesia. If you want to hear about that, I can tell you. But you can try to ask me about my David <laughs> and my experience. My job was to be an elementary school teacher teaching Micronesian elementary children English, reading, writing, and 
speaking. Hmm. And uh, so I had a Micronesian co-teacher who taught first and second grade in one room because his English was good enough for teaching that level of English. And then my job was teaching third, fourth, fifth, and sixth together in the other room of our schoolhouse. And there were just a handful of kids at each age group all together. And their language is not a written language. So this was the first reading and writing for them. Interesting. Yeah. In a lot of Micronesia, there's so much heat and humidity. Well, it's only 80-some degrees, but it's year-round, day and night, and the humidity is really high. And things don't last. Things like our cameras rusted out, and towels that we brought just rotted. So... You can imagine that it's hard to have anything to write on. It just wasn't conducive to writing being developed in, sure. in that climate. Yeah, one so, could explain, you know, that would culturally that would definitely make sense. And, um, right. You know, during... There was no such thing as clay for clay tablets or stones for incising on stone, or papyrus for turning in paper um, that would last. <laughs> and, and I know that that played into, you know, you've, you've told me um, a few times that the kids were just so carefree and in touch with nature, and you, you tried to emulate that and kind of follow the local customs as much as possible. I mean... You know, going barefoot everywhere, running barefoot, walking barefoot, uh, exploring the the area where they um, where the kids uh, spent their time, and uh, I know that you made some very close friends and relationships. Yeah, it's actually a wonderful place for children to grow up. It is. It's truly a village raising the children. The children are well-loved by everybody in the village of um, beautiful houses that are made by lashing with rope, rope made out of coconut husk fibers. Mm. Um, uh, Lashing beams together to make sturdy houses that can survive hurricanes for the most part and heavy rains and the houses are all arranged on the lagoon side of the island where the ocean is very calm because Hmm. the ring of islands that are formed on top of the coral on the crater of the underwater volcano um have a a very deep lagoon in the middle and the outer edges of the island are where the waves are strong and everybody essentially is oriented toward the lagoon side of the island whichever side that is there were four um, populated islands um, inhabited um, on the lagoon where I lived which actually had 30 islands around it. 
but four of them inhabited, and each with their own little schoolhouse and peach bar volunteers like wow. me. Yeah, and that you know, and, Toby, if um, if I could just kind of interject there, I I find it's for many of us that served in the Peace Corps in the in the '90s and O's and into the 2000s. That time in history was quite nostalgic, you know, just after President Kennedy had founded the Peace Corps and the 60s and early 70s. Um, what was that like, you know, in terms of your decision to, to go to, to join the Peace Corps into such an isolated area? And what were the people like um, whom you volunteered with or who were part of that, that group? Important, because when I was there, 69 to 71, there were a lot of people who were trying not to go to fight in Vietnam. Hmm. There were others my age who were, you know, very willing to go, but people were looking for deferments. And my college sweetheart husband had a very low draft number, and he definitely would have been sent to Vietnam to fight. Um but the Peace Corps was a deferment for him, and he was definitely the kind of person who should have not been sent to Vietnam to fight. He was a philosopher and an actor, and very sensitive kind of guy, and he um, really wanted to go to graduate school, but couldn't because graduate school was not a deferment. Huh. And Peace Corps was a deferment. And for many other volunteers at the time, it was a deferment. And luckily, when we got out of our, um, at the Peace Corps two years later, um, uh, the draft wasn't uh, still affecting people the way it had been. Hmm. Um, and uh, there's another piece that is important. <laughs> I think that when I was assigned to my island of Ulysses in Micronesia in 1969, my dad said, oh, I was there because he was in the U.S. Navy in World War II fighting in the Pacific, and the island where I was sent as a Peace Corps volunteer, he had been to for R&R hmm. for the U.S. Navy. And when I, so I was there like 23, 24 years after my dad, and the people on my island still talked about all the ships that were in their lagoon. The lagoon was 30 miles across, huge tiny islands, a huge lagoon, and it had, because the Ring of Coral Islands protects the waters in the center of the lagoon, there's just a few channels in to the water, it's, um, the U.S. Navy put all of its ships there waiting to attack Japan, and that's hmm. where people rested and had R&R on the island where I was and where still some of the Quonset huts and, of course, the airstrip that the U.S. had built um, uh, were being used still. Um, and What a unique history, and how, how <laughs> neat that it ties in with your dad, you know, 20 years before you were there. Um, right, uh, right. And they were, the people there remembered that the ships 
filled their lagoon and so packed, so tight, that what they said was you could walk across the water from deck to deck to deck, from ship to ship to ship. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually asked to go to India and do health work <laughs> because I'd heard of the need in India, but I really wasn't very qualified for any kind of health work. And it was a very appropriate to send me to work with um, children and teach school, even though I'd never had an education course. In those days, peaceful volunteers were called BA generalists. We just had college degree in anything hmm. qualified us to um, be in the Peace Corps. It's a lot harder to get in nowadays. And so I was offered Micronesia because the United States at the time was sending a lot of volunteers to Micronesia to teach English on all these thousands of little islands. Hmm. Have and that was interesting. I know that you've mentioned to me in the past that there are some political aspects to that and that the U.S. government wasn't super responsible in terms of the, the testing and the ways that they treated all the islands as well. Yes, that, that's really an important part of American history that most of us don't know about. Not where I was in Yap District but further east in the Marshall Islands are where the United States tested atom bombs. We'd already tested two kinds of bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II, but the United States wanted to test a lot more hmm. kinds of atomic weapons because it was an arms race with Russia. That's what was really going on. Um, and the United States wanted to have the best arsenal of atomic weapons and stay ahead of the Russians. And so everybody um, has heard of bikini, but probably has no idea that that's a Micronesian word that has come into the English language because bikini was a a place it still is in the Marshall Islands, huh. and Bikini was a very beautiful island with a lot of people living on it, and subsistence in Micronesia is very healthy. It's possible to um, live year-round, eating well, and um, totally subsisting off the land and the sea. Uh, on my island and many other islands, and Bikini was like that. It was a lovely, healthy, paradise kind of a place. The United States chose it for testing an atom bomb hmm. and told the people that they would be doing humanity a great favor by moving off their island and letting the United States do this test. Hmm. And the people are very community-oriented in Micronesia. Their, their, their whole mentality is about cooperating mm. and uh, caring for each other. So for the sake of humanity, they agreed to move off their island. And then the United States tested an atom bomb on the island, and it 
split the island of Bikini into two smaller parts. And that's when United States bathing suit makers claimed the name for changing the fashion from women's one-piece bathing suits to two skimpy pieces. Interesting. Well, I, I never realized that was the origin or that was why. Well, certainly that's unfortunate um, that the word has that origin and probably a little bit, well, for many people, I'm sure, leaves a, a very bad um, uh, memory and impression on them. Well, there's, a lot, there's more to the story that's even worse, in my opinion. The United States government, they didn't, they didn't know a lot about the effects of radiation, but they saw what happened in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So they were not innocent. And they moved the people off Bikini onto another island that was downwind of Bikini. Hmm. And all the radiation from the huge uh, mushroom-shaped cloud uh, blew towards the island where they were moved to. And so the people that were moved from Bikini willingly suffered um, Incredibly. radiation. The, sure. the children were excited to see this white stuff falling from the sky. They'd heard of snow, and hmm. they played in it or tasted it. And it was all... Um, you know, radioactive dust particles. And, you know, and it's not just the atomic bomb testing, but Micronesia has been very attractive as a site for military bases hmm. all across the Pacific. Hmm. So most Americans have no idea that the United States has 800 military bases in foreign countries. Hmm. And the next largest amount of military bases is 35. I believe that's Russia, France, and Britain combined. Toby, you know, that, that kind of consciousness, I think, was somewhat born of that generation and probably people who served in the Peace Corps and is, is sometimes hard to find people with that kind of knowledge and that kind of uh, willingness to speak out against those kind of things. So I think that's... Um, you know, that's a testament to you and to the people who served in the Peace Corps at that time, too. Yeah, we're pretty ignorant of um, history and geography in this country. Hmm. And it, I think it's important for people to know that when the Philippines kicked the United States out of Subic Bay, which was a, a big day where the United States had a naval installation uh, huge, um, the U.S. moved to Palau, which is the westernmost part of Micronesia, with, which also had a big bay that they liked for military purposes. That's a huge bay. Hmm. The island of Guam, which is part of the volcanic island chain of the Marianas Island, which are also part of Micronesia. Guam, Saipan, Rota, Tinian, all big names in World War II, in battles and uh, bombings and so on. That um, Guam is geologically part of that same island chain, it's the biggest southernmost island. 
um, but it's it's been politically separate for a long time because the United States um, has so many different military bases on Guam. Mm. A huge part of the land is military. And my island, which was teeny, um, <laughs> oh, half a mile by a quarter of a mile, it had an airstrip across the the most fertile land because that was the best location for an airstrip during World War II. Hmm. And um, so the people gave up the places that were best for them to grow their taro, which is a major um, basic part of their diet, and um, also papyrus and breadfruit, which are fabulous, huge trees as big as oak trees. And people who, who are Micronesian are not allowed to live on what was their island. They're pushed off into this crowded place where TB is such a problem because of the crowding. And But the Micronesian people who live there go on a boat each day to do the work on the bigger island um, that's needed, the various kinds of labor. And then they come back every night to their crowded place. Um, I think... We as Americans need to understand that this is what some, uh, maybe many of our military bases mean in other countries. Hmm. Oh, that's that's really enlightening in many ways, particularly when, as you mentioned, space and arable land is at such a premium. You know, to to do something like that is is really non non excusable. Um, uh-huh. So, Toby, I, I want to bring things back around to your life today. I know that that experience in the Peace Corps and what it brought you has, has made you still a community activist, and you still run around with the kids uh, outside barefoot, and you're one of the most energetic and positive, um, you know, you might not tell it from this conversation, but one of the most energetic and positive <laughs> people right. that I know of. <laughs> of your generation and i um yeah i just want to want to say thank you for for sharing all this with us and also um you know thank you for the influence that you have on on young people and uh particularly in uh, keeping people healthy and giving people healthy spaces in the community that are connected and um both spiritually and physically and also between uh, different types of people in in the community in Kalamazoo. Thank you, Mark. As we recall this, I think that a lot of people will have learned a lot about U.S. history and also about Peace Corps history and, um, you know, be inspired to maybe bring about peace in future future generations. So thank you. It's important to speak up. It's really important to speak up about our country living up to our best ideals. That's right, because we, we are the best when we share everything and when we're completely transparent and we're able to debate and tell each other what we don't like and what we do like. And, yeah, and we need to be as informed as we can so that we influence our leaders to do things that do good in the world. I'm, I'm with you 100%. Thank, thank you, Toby, and uh, happy running. Thank you. Appreciate <laughs> your interviewing me. Thanks very much, Mark. Welcome. 
and thanks to all of you for joining us today. I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did, taking a trip through individuals running experience in the Peace Corps and a little bit down the road of history. In coming weeks, we hear from a little bit more practical advice from Jeff Galloway, the Run Disney coach, as well as learning about the on the grounds spirituality of running from individuals running 3,100 miles. What that's like, what it takes, and I hope that it takes you to new heights. Please join us on Facebook or Instagram at Running Anthropologist. Visit our website and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. What moves you? What are your most interesting runs? And most of all, we wish you happy running.